this series we're in uh, will be connected to even Veterans Day today and some of the things that we'll talk about as we share. And you get to meet somebody from our congregation that I think it will be really uh, inspiring for you and help you connect um, what's happening in the scriptures and what's happening in a variety of places in our culture. And when we talk about this, uh, this series of scroll, and we let you know that it was a pre-Advent series. Our hope is that as we get into the Christmas season, we're busy, you're busy, we're going to be doing all sorts of things, schedules are full, and our mind and attention is often on the preparation for the holiday and the time that we'll spend together. And so we, what we want to do is refocus our attention and maybe even do a bit of a hope check, if you will, to be sure that our hope is focused in, located on the right things. Then when Christmas comes, I mean, it's all about the celebration. And what flows in the celebration is this feeling that God is up to some good stuff and we're a part of it. Often as we look around at the world, if you're reading the headlines I'm reading, you think, oh my goodness, you know, I can't believe. And maybe we have this perspective, could it get any worse? But psychology, the world of psychology, and the scriptures agree that if you're going to refocus your hope or if your hope is going to move to good places that two things are required. One is, is that we know what better is. In other words, if somebody said, you know, you don't like it now, it's not good now, what, what would be better? You have an answer that's ready, just rolls right off your tongue. Well, you know what would be better? And if you don't know what better is, you just think, I don't know, I just don't like what it is now, then hope is going to be elusive for you. But if you want to move to a place where hope is actually helping you and moving you to good places, you know what better is. That's the first thing. And scriptures make that clear, and, and we understand this from everyone who has studied the science of hope and the psychology of hope over the last many years. But the second thing that's needed is a, is a map or a path. In other words, I, I know what better is, and I know how to get there. We, we go this direction, we do these things, this is how we approach it. And without those two things, then hope is elusive. And as the scriptures say, hope deferred or hope that's not realized, it makes the heart, what does it say? It makes the heart sick. That's right. And so when hope is shoved off or it feels unattainable or we don't know how to get there, we find ourselves in pretty bad spots. We find ourselves wanting that which cannot be had and we don't know how to get it. But if you're going to enter the Christmas season with a renewed hope, then we think that can come from the scriptures that we're looking at specifically, but not only that, what they mean and how they are practically effective today. And we think they're incredibly practically effective today. They're just not the top things that we think about as we engage in life in this world. So this series, the scroll, it came from this passage uh, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he's about 30 years old, he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and he read the scriptures. When he got there, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. This was the passage that we looked at last week and we'll be looking at it every week and maybe a different aspect and it will become, I believe, more real to you as we go through this month leading up to Advent. And so let's read this all together again, just like we did last week. Are you ready? Here we go. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's a a passage of contrasts. For every miserable, undesirable state, there's another state that's described of, of bliss or amazing peace or now something that somebody can move toward, whether it's poor receiving the good news or captives being released or the blind seeing. And this picture that Isaiah the prophet painted some 700 years before Jesus stood in his hometown synagogue and read this, it was a a passage of liberation and hope. And it pointed to a time when the Messiah would come and it describes a complete reversal of fortune for so many even me, even you. And we asked you last week to ponder in what ways have you been captive? How have you been blind? How have you been oppressed? Or even today, how you might consider yourself poor. And Jesus stands up and he reads this and then he hands the scroll back and he sits down as any good rabbi would do when he's about ready to teach and he says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is an audacious statement. When Jesus said this, I'm sure it was confusing. Uh, The prophets had said so many things about what was to come, and everything the prophets said had something true, you know, now, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you name it, and something that would be true later. But no one had ever claimed throughout Jewish history up to this point in time No one had ever claimed that what the prophets had said was completely fulfilled now, and Jesus does, and he says it. No future fulfillment. It is fulfilled now. It has been fulfilled in your hearing, and what began was an age that we're experiencing now, and as we read this passage, and we'll look at the passage directly from Isaiah as well. And as we consider what Jesus said, the question we'll wrestle with over the next four weeks through this series, and as you try to sort out your hope and where your hope is located and what your hope is in and how you get there, the question that we'll wrestle with is this one. Is this even true? Is it really true? And, and if so, in what ways? Because I don't know about you, but I look around and I see a few captives. I look around and I see the poor. Did you see the poor when you came to church today? Did you pass some of the poor? Have you experienced this in your own life? And so what in the world does it mean when Jesus says it is fulfilled in your hearing? And if it is true, well, back up just a bit. If it's not true, we have to reconsider how we read scripture and what we count on God for. But if it is true and we believe that Jesus spoke the truth and that he is the truth, then how? How is it true? And what does that mean for me? And what does it mean for you? And what does it mean for the captives? What does it mean for the oppressed? And what does it mean for the poor? What does it mean for my life? And what does it mean for your life? So with this in mind, I want you to meet a good friend of mine. His name's Dr. Earl Gone. Earl, would you come up? Welcome Earl up to the stage, would you? So Earl has been a part of Castle Oaks for a while now. That's for you. Yep, yep. 
and uh, Dr. Earl Guy, he's a doctor of veterinary medicine, and um, his family is here as well. Kathy's with you today. Kathy, would you wave your arm so we can all see? Dr. Kathy Gone as well. She's also a doctor of veterinary medicine. Uh, and the kids aren't with you today, right? No, they thought better of coming to listen to me. Okay. <laughs> so two, two kids that they have, Michael and, and Jesse, uh, both, both grown and, uh, and mostly on their own. And uh, So Earl, we're glad you're here. I, I want you to paint a picture of uh, an organization that you've become familiar with over the years and that you've gotten to know. Um, and we want to introduce this organization to our church body and help them understand what they're all about. So Earl is um, associated with, volunteers for, and gives some energy toward an organization called the Remount Foundation, based in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit about how you became familiar with Remount. You bet. Can I back up just for one Oh, you second. sure can. Um, yeah, I'm a veterinarian, but I'm not a veteran. And so I feel compelled today especially to be clear about that. Um, and I look back in my life because this Remount Foundation has sort of brought me full circle to that. Um, my, I was the last birth date that was given a draft number. And mine was six. And so I was heading to Vietnam and then they stopped the draft. I've always felt some, I'll just call it guilt, yeah. because I did not serve. So thank you to those of you who did. It means a lot to me. And um, sorry, as I go on today, I'm going to choke up more than once or twice probably. <laughs> but I am a veterinarian, and I'm an, a horse doctor, essentially. I had the great privilege of working with Dr. Dietz and Dr. French for a little while here in Colorado, and um, the horse has some unique things to offer humans, and so um, one of the things I thought I might lead with as well, as I think you and I talked about, I keep a little statement above my desk at home, and um, Winston Churchill once said that the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man, and um, I would second that. So now the long kind of winding road to the Remount Foundation. Um, the world is small in certain circles, and the horse world especially is that way. When Kathy and I moved the kids out here to Colorado, we had some other friends that we knew from Kansas, one of which had served actually on the Board of Trustees at the Air Force Academy. And she insisted that I meet this guy who was the superintendent at the Equestrian Center guy named Billy Jack Barrett, which you see in the picture up here. <clears throat> and Billy Jack ran the Air Force uh, Equestrian Center, I think, for 32 years. He's an Army veteran himself and quite a horseman. And if he were here today, you should probably sit and prepare yourself to stay all day for the stories that he can tell. <laughs> He's good at it. Um, so we met, and at the time I was... Uh, uh, beginning a new job working for Merck Animal Health, which is a pharmaceutical company. And so we had some thoughts back and forth about what we could do for the Remount horses. But then I began to learn about what the Remount Foundation does. And the other person you see in this picture here is a, a woman named Jeannie Springer. And the two of these folks started the Remount Foundation as what was known as the Warrior Wellness Foundation back in 2008. Because of the close name to the Wounded Warrior Foundation, they 
evolved into the Remount Foundation. And those of you who are familiar with horses have heard that Remount term before, but essentially the old Remount part of the cavalry in the U.S. Army was to provide new horses when the horses were either exhausted or lost. And so the thought was you remounted the soldiers. And the Remount Foundation is trying to remount lives. And so what was noticed was that people, soldiers, families that had experienced various kinds of trauma, physical and mental, um, found themselves kind of migrating to the equestrian center just to be there. It's, it's rather like a sanctuary out there. If you haven't been, I would encourage you some time to go. There's nothing magical about the facilities. In my opinion, they're actually a little bit run down. Um, but the horses are there and the people are there and there's some peace that's found there. And so they noticed that some lives were changing and wanted to encourage that more. Billy Jack talks about knowing Audie Murphy. I kind of tried to put the dates together, and I'm not real sure how accurate that might be, but those of you who know Audie Murphy's name, the most decorated soldier from World War II, a Texas horseman, actually, and they talked about when he came back, the struggles he had with what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Um, used to call it different things in that era, but he would just go to the barn and stay. He'd ride some, but sometimes he'd just hang out with the horses, and he claims the horses saved his life. So I'm rambling, as you can tell, and so, uh, but that is the origins of the Remount Foundation. To date, they have made contact with about 10,000 different people. That's families, um, as well as those who are in need. The evolution has gone in the direction which will be a little tough to talk about here, but it's suicide. Um, essentially, we're looking at horses. When I define the Remount Foundation to people, I said it's an organization that uses horses for suicide prevention for veterans, active duty, first responders, and their families. Um, it has become known as maybe the most successful suicide prevention program in the U.S. military by folks at the Pentagon. So something good's happening. And what's kind of cool about it is the horses there. Yeah. For those of us who work with horses every day and those of us who get to see them every day, it sort of makes sense, but sometimes it comes around and surprises us with what good things can happen as well. In your experience, you've seen... Uh, veterans interact with horses and change their lives in some way. One of the gentlemen that you've shared a little bit about is named David Andrews. Tell us a little bit about David. This is a place I probably will choke some. <laughs> Everybody has heroes, and David's one of mine. Um, he is a retired veteran now, and David's story is that um, he volunteered, signed up, enlisted um, in the Navy, became a medic, and then progressed on to serve with special forces teams from each of the branches of the military. So his experiences are rather unique, um, but he has seen a lot. And David retired as a major, and we'll get to what he accomplished here in just a moment. 
But David's story that he tells, and he's very comfortable with me telling his story here today because he uh, uh, tells it in a lot of different places and he affects a lot of people in a very good way. But he will tell you that he has been shot, he's been blown up. He goes, I signed up for that. He goes, I knew what I was getting into. The picture on the right up here is David with a lot of children in Afghanistan. He has a number of tours under his belt in Iraq and Afghanistan. And David said what broke him was when he had befriended a family in Afghanistan and that that phase of the Afghanistan conflict, there was a lot of effort for hearts and minds uniting between the Afghani nationals and the U.S. military. And so there was one particular day where David's unit was going to rendezvous at a certain place. The family and all these kids found out about he was coming. They were excited to surprise him. David's never late, ever. The military has a saying about being on time and being late. They'd be rather ashamed of me. <laughs> but... Uh, David was 10 minutes late, and the families and the children got there, but the Taliban found out they were there as well, and they rocketed the place before David arrived. And he said, I could handle my physical injuries. I couldn't handle getting children killed. And it changed his life. He soon after came home and um, stepped out of the service, one of the things that David and many others that I've been able to visit with, you know, the VA kind of gets a bad hit every now and then, um, but he, he will never say a bad word about the VA. He says they're simply overwhelmed. And so especially on the mental health side of things, David would tell you, I think if he was here, he spent 27 months where he would go monthly to report in to the mental health professionals and the way he phrases it, they would always go, well, tell me your story. He would tell them the story. They would write him a prescription. And David said, you know, I, I live sedated enough to eat, drink, go to the bathroom, and sleep. For those 27 months, I decided my family didn't need me anymore. And so he thought he should end his life. And he tried. He found out about the Remount Foundation, kind of who knows how word of mouth spreads because this is not highly advertised. So he took a day when he thought it was near the end. He said, I'm going to try one more thing. So he went to the equestrian center. He met Jeannie Springer. And he said, you know, for the first time ever, nobody asked me what my story was. They said, why are you here? He says, because I want to find out if I should live another day. So without beating an eye, when you meet Jeannie, if you do someday, you'll appreciate this. She goes, okay, there's a pen of horses over there. I want you to go find out what happens. David's also very funny. <laughs> he said, you know, I'm a big, bad warrior dude. I'm scared to death of horses. <laughs> and so... But he did what he was asked to do, and he went in this pen of mostly mares, female horses, 
And he goes, I didn't know what to do. They didn't give me any instructions, and I'm a little nervous, and all this is going on. So he just stood there. And as has become a very common experience, he said it took 10 to 20 minutes, and this one red mare came over and just stood beside him. She didn't leave. She didn't do anything to him. He said, I said, what would you do? And he goes, I just touched her. And she didn't leave. He goes, I stayed another 10 minutes or so. And he goes, I'm coming back tomorrow. And that he credits with being the first day of his continued living. Um, he is very honest. His traumas don't go away. Um, so David became the president of the Remount Foundation at a time when I was getting involved. And it, it's much like me and Roger Mounts. We became friends almost from the day we said hello. Um, I hope Roger feels that way. <laughs> yeah, he said he does. Yeah, yeah. Me and my family feel that way about it. So, but, um, so David shared a lot. And um, this is not about veterinarians today. But veterans and veterinarians' names are similar, and we started realizing that we had a lot to share. Because unfortunately, in veterinary medicine, is the we, ha, we lead the medical professions in suicide. And so there was a lot of linkage here, and we kind of went, how does that happen when you spend your day with horses and small animals and livestock and stuff? But it does. It's the reality. So I got to go literally around the country with David before COVID, um, and we would talk to organizations. Um, and he, every time I listen to David talk and we ex have conversations, I learn more. And he pays a price every time he has these conversations. But the lives he's touched have been remarkable. And the price he often pays is he told me once, you know, after I tell my story, to try to help other people. He goes, I have nightmares every night, but when I do this, my nightmares are in color. I said, why do you do this? He said, because I might touch somebody that this will help. And, um, the other fascinating thing about horses is as we would travel, we'd, we'd do some presentations in barns and things like that every now and then. And he, he actually gave me a heads up once. He goes, just watch tonight and see what happens. And I watched, and it did happen. He goes, every time I go to someplace new and there are horses around, at least one will come to me. They know I'm broken, is the way he puts it. And uh, he is a tough guy. Yeah. But, man, you can't find a guy who's gentle and loving any more than David Andrews. So... He's an example, just one of many who, with developing a relationship with a horse, and the folks who run the remount, they'll, they're very honest, too. They'll back up and go, you know, we'll link the people with the horse and try to get out of the way and let the horse lead the therapy, if you will. So what is it about an interaction with a horse mm -hmm. that can help... Uh soothe PTSD or help somebody have a sense of belonging? I wish I could tell you exactly what it was. It's 
and, and being kind of hardcore science trained, this blows my mind a little bit because there's almost something mystical about it. And I keep looking at Will and Becca because they probably would agree. There's some of this stuff that's hard to define. On the scientific side, what is known and is increasing documentation coming is um, the horse's electromagnetic energy, if you will, and this gets a little weird, um, and, the, and humans perhaps cross over a little bit and you have some cardiovascular influences that are, are known and documentable. If someone's highly anxious and they get around a horse who's not and the, the herd mentality is such that um, calm is what is indicated at the time, you can actually monitor a human's heart rate that goes down. And along with that, the anxiety recedes. And there's some more um, sense of peace that comes about. And obviously, that's what a lot of people need. And so I think I mentioned to you in one time when we were visiting that I have a horse at home who's a particular, we're in polite company, I'll call him a knothead. Um, <laughs> Kathy's heard me use that term before. <laughs> um, he challenges me more than a little bit, and um, but the first time I came home from the Remount Foundation, he and I don't look at each other the same. He still pushes things. None of that actually ever goes away. But I had a sense of what these animals can do. And when we talk about, because I thought one of the veterinarian perspectives on this thing was, well, I'll get to pick the good horses. Yeah. And what Jeannie mentioned quite quickly, she goes, there is no such thing. Any horse can help somebody. Um, and that's pretty much been the case. So um, my sense is that there's a non-judgmental thing that you see that also happens with small animals, service dogs, all the way to pets that just crawl up in your lap. The horse is just a big version of that. Yeah. But we see some physiologic things change. Yeah. Um, there was recently a young Special Forces soldier who had had some traumatic brain injury, and he had some full-body seizure-like activity. And getting ne next to and with a horse literally made all that go away. I can't explain all of that. Yeah. But it's a reality that your eyes won't let go. That's right. It happens. Um, and so my read on it is it's a, uh, it's a relationship that develops quickly. Yeah. Horses do a lot of things very quickly. And they assess people that way too. Mm -hmm. And as David said, they know I'm broken. And um, literally, you can have an arena that's four times the size of our sanctuary, put a group of horses in one end, put some soldiers in the other, and just watch what happens, and these horses will migrate to the people. Mm. And something happens. So you volunteer. You, you mm -hmm. have served on the board, served as their treasurer. Um, how is your faith connected to this expression of what the Remount Foundation does and, and how are those related? It's a great question because um, 
in the legal world, you know, the Remount Foundation is a 501c3. Uh, we seek um, federal grants and state grants so we cannot, quote unquote, proselytize. But I can tell you, I've not heard any soldier go through this or first responder go through this program that doesn't come out with a spiritual faith statement. It's not always Christian, yeah. um, but it's always there. So for me, personally, um, I feel like I've taken home so much more than I've ever come close to giving. Um, just listening to people um, and realizing how blessed I have been and you know, you can't help but ask the question, why them and not me? Um, and so that causes reflection, and it has generated a m more intensive study for me, if you will. But I've pondered this question more than a little bit, and it comes back to the, the little things. Kathy probably will tell you, Shamefully, I react to a lot of little things <laughs> in, in dramatic ways that I shouldn't. Um, I, I don't think I do that as much as I, I used to. Yeah. Um, I, I read something the other day, sort of related but not. He said, you can measure a man by the magnitude of the things that they react to. Sure. And um, I'm working on that. Yeah. But the, the faith journey to recognize the blessings that I've had and continue to have and that perhaps those should also be turned somewhat into service. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where it's influenced me greatly. Yeah. And so the organization, if, if anybody wanted to get involved, get connected, they could chat with you. What are ways that uh, the Remount Foundation needs help? Now I know how you must feel. We always need money. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I don't talk about this with anyone that someone doesn't say, how can I help? Yeah. And so we're actually working through this now because the volunteers who actually work between the horses and the folks who are in need go through some special training. You can't just show up and, and do that. So if you are interested, we can begin to th figure out when the next training sessions are happening and that type of thing. But we've also begun the conversation of what other volunteers, I, I've kind of encouraged and we're in the process of developing what we call the second tier of volunteers, the, the gophers, the people that can do things, you know, clean and tack. Interestingly enough, a lot of these folks who show up, and I should probably pause for at least a moment because sometimes we think about veterans in only male form. 50% of the folks who utilize the Remount Foundation are female. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much sexual trauma, and that is the, re the reason 90% of the women come to the Remount Foundation. Where the reason that comes up is because there's always a difference experience for everyone and interestingly enough some folks who come out to the remount get as much peace from pitch, picking up a pitchfork and cleaning out a stall 
as they do from getting in the saddle and taking a trail ride. Um, yeah, it was one of my first times out there. Billy Jack actually, he said, now if you see somebody cleaning the stall, he just, just let them go. He goes, and leave them as long as they want to be there. He goes, it's incredible what good comes out of that. Um, and he, he was funny. He goes, especially the guys that have long hair and beards. He goes, don't bother those. He goes, <laughs> he goes they're the toughest people that we have. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, right now, if someone wants to help the remount without trying to overstate it, financial support is always needed. But... Um, you know, we are organizing, and if you're interested in that, I'd be very happy to develop a list and get that in Jeannie's hands, as well as liaison back and forth to when training can happen and, and that type of thing. My term on the board just expired, but I plan to continue to volunteer. Yeah. Would you do me a favor and uh, thank uh, Dr. Gone for being with us? Thanks so much. Yeah. Earl's a, a busy guy, and uh, he decided at a point in time to invest his time and energy in what's happening down at Remount. There are a, a, a myriad of ways that you could get involved, and they aren't the only organization that use uh, equine resources to treat PTSD, but they're one of the best. And it gives you a glimpse of how this scripture is coming to life, and how it actually saves lives and helps people experience the abundant or the full life that Jesus described. Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus quoted, this is the NIV. When Jesus read it, it was from the, what we call the Septuagint. It was the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. So it sounded a little bit different when Jesus quoted it. And Jesus mixed in a few other things, and we'll talk about that in subsequent weeks. But Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. I can't imagine something more true than the story of David Andrews and his life and his feeling that as he faced his family, he wondered if this world might be better without him. This, of course, is a place of brokenhearted prison. And I don't understand how it happens that he stands near a mayor for a few minutes and begins to think, I think I'll come back tomorrow, but he did. And there are people that are putting together these experiences. Some of them involve uh, what you've heard about today, many other experiences where a prisoner who is captive by a history, a past, a fear, a trauma, a brain injury, experiences freedom in a way that they didn't even know that they could ever again. And the ways in which the scripture is coming to life could not be more relatable. It could not be more obvious to us as we consider the experiences of these men and women who have served our country today. And so in this passage, this is what Jesus says happens. And you may know somebody who's captive, you may know somebody who's brokenhearted or somebody who's living in darkness, and it could be that God has put you in their sphere 
so that you can begin to show them the way out. And I don't know how that could happen if you didn't understand who Jesus was more fully and more completely. When Jesus says this, when he quotes it, he also quotes what Isaiah said very next. He said, now I'm here to proclaim the year of the what? This is a, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew and, and then even translated into the Greek. It, it means to take delight in. It, it means to be accepted completely and fully. That's what it means. It means you can step into a relationship and know that you're good, that we're okay, that in spite of what happened or what could happen, that this moment, God is with you. It's got this relational component when you experience the Lord's favor. You have a sense of peace that you wouldn't have otherwise had. It removes the distance between you and God. It means that God, his presence, is obviously with you and connected with you. It's the essence of what happens when we take communion together. It's why we gather to take communion. When Jesus was with his friends the last night, he had this meal in front of him and he said this in the Gospel of John. He said, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, here's what I've done. I'm healing the relationship. There was distance between you and God. I've come to build a bridge between that. The anxiety that you feel is because you aren't sure if you measure up. Jesus says, I'm answering that for you. You're not sure if your existential dread is going to go away. Jesus said, I'm taking care of that. I'm erasing that. I'm bringing you close. It is the essence of Advent. Emmanuel means what? God with us. This is the essence of this meal that we take when we gather. And so to receive it, we come open-handedly to receive. It's why Mr. Andrews found himself in a pen with a bunch of mares that he didn't know whether he was going to get trampled or loved on. Open-handed. When you approach one of our servers You'll have to literally, with your open hand, reach out and receive the elements. And as we do that, we remember that Jesus was there. He held up the bread and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take it and receive. And he held up the cup of Passover. It held in it the fruit of the vine. And it was a cup of a new covenant And he said, this is my blood, it's poured out for you. Take, receive it, drink from it, all of you. And so Lord, in this moment, as we recognize these elements that are given for us, we come to you with open hands. And we declare that the scriptures that we've read in Luke 4 and Isaiah 61, that they are true. And we have seen how they can be made true today. And so for the thousands that have experienced a level of freedom that they didn't even know was there through this foundation and many others, we're grateful. Before they give us hope, they help us see that there are prisoners who are in the dark who are being shown the light and being released. 
that you're binding up the brokenhearted. And Lord, for those of us here in this place and at home who are about to consume this meal together and remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son, we confess that we are, some of us, a bit lost today. That we are a bit brokenhearted. That we bring our wounds for you to bind them up. That we bring our fears for you to speak truth into them. That we are reminded that you are with us. That when we take these elements with our open hands, we come to you saying that we need you, Lord. And so we declare this today. And as we remember, as we take communion here in this place and in homes, we ask that your presence would be made obvious and that we would come to you fully surrendered. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. And we say together, amen.